Are you interested in a life in ministry? Are you passionate about the church and how it functions? Do you not get enough of listening to pastors on Sundays? Well, you're in the right place. This is Under the Fig Tree, a podcast for people who are interested in church work. I'm Ben. And I'm Micah. We are two pastors who work at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Join us as we dive into the vocation of pastoral ministry, dig into scripture, and occasionally talk about other stuff like our unquestionable love for the Dallas Cowboys. And of course, we'll be talking about Star Wars. We'll talk to guests about doctrine, traditions, and what makes someone a good candidate for the pastoral office besides being called by God. And we may just help you figure out if this pastor or deaconess stuff is for you. Again, this is Under the Fig Tree from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. What's up? What's up? What's up, everyone? Welcome back once again to another episode of Under the Fig Tree. I'm your host, the Reverend Micah Glenn. I'm, I serve as the Director of Recruitment here at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And of course, I'm joined with my esteemed colleague and co-host, the Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt. How are you going? How are you? Do- how are you going? How are you doing, bro? <laughs> I'm going, going good, doing fine, all that good stuff. I'm looking out it's a spring day, and yet uh, there's snow falling from the sky, which is insane. Um, I I recently got a um, a new smoker, and last weekend it was beautiful, almost summer-like weather, and I was smoking meat and getting tips from Micah, the the uh, awesome pit master, and uh, and and here today it's it's snowing. You know that's Welcome one of the. Missouri. Yeah, exactly. One of the more exciting things about being in St. Louis, because there's like a, a couple months on either side of the year uh, where the the weather can be dramatically different than what you think it should. You can get a, a 90 degree in day no, in November, and you can also get a, a wintry day uh, towards the end of April. Uh, so exciting life here in St. Louis. Not frustrating, not confusing one bit, you know, trying to decide whether to keep your heater on, turn your AC on, open windows. But, you know, we do what we do. That's right. And we're today joined with a, a special guest. Um, Dr. David Lewis uh, is with us today. He's assistant professor of exegetical theology and um, completed his uh, dissertation on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Dr. Lewis, it's so good to have you with us today uh, to talk about Titus chapter 3. Uh, but uh, first, we want to we want to hear a little bit about you. Tell us uh, tell us especially, you know, why did you become a pastor in the first place, and uh, what was life like before you came to seminary the first time to study? Okay, well, th- thank you first for uh, having me on on the show. It's good to be with you guys, and uh, I too am looking out at this uh, bizarre April snow. Uh, my daughter told me this is not a real snowstorm because there's no chance of it sticking and school being canceled. So uh, you can take that for what it's worth. But uh, yeah, this is strange. Uh, if you don't like the weather in St. Louis, what do, what do we say? Wait an hour and it'll change. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, I, my, uh, my parents uh, converted to Christianity uh, sort of late in life after four of us had been born. I was still uh, a toddler at the time. And uh, we were baptized first into the Congregationalist Church because uh, my mom had a Presbyterian background. And then uh, 
as my dad would tell the story, the gospel wasn't very clear in that Congregationalist church. And uh, he met a Lutheran pastor. He went through adult instruction and became uh, a Lutheran, primarily because uh, it was the you know the, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that drew him in. So for my my whole conscious life, I've been nothing but Lutheran. Uh, as far as I've known, we uh, went to uh, Christ the King Lutheran Church in Walnut, uh, California. Went to St. Paul's Lutheran Church uh, for elementary school, uh, and part of my background, um, my dad used to tell me every pastor we had always told him, David ought to become a pastor. And then as soon as I was old enough to start having a relationship with my pastors, they would always advise me to go to the seminary. My dad was always on me about going to the seminary. Um, and I, I could say, honestly, I, I considered it, but it was like probably if I had a top 10 list of careers, that would have been number 10. Number one, you know, I wanted to be a firefighter or, you know, I wanted to be a superhero, you know, when I was really little, uh, I wanted to do a whole bunch of other things. I wanted to get rich, you know, when I was in high school, I said, I want to get a job that'll make a lot of money. And uh, it was always there, but never, yeah, I, I wouldn't seriously consider it. After high school, uh, I decided to join the army uh, and I served three years active duty under uh, President Carter and then President Reagan. And then when I got out of the army, I had some money for school and my dad was saying, you know, you ought to do some major that'll lead to the seminary. And again, at that time, I said, no, I'm going to go pre-law so that I can go to law school. And so I did a pre-law program and you know, I was active in the church. I was teaching Sunday school while I was in college. And again, our pastor there was saying, David, you really ought to go to the seminary. And it wasn't until I was in my final semester uh, at the university that I just finally, I, I had that inner call, that experience, just maybe I, I should check this out. And then finally I, de I decided, went to my pastor, I said, okay, I'm going to apply to Concordia Seminary. And he, he was excited. He helped me through. And, uh, and there was a part of me thinking, you know, I'm going to go for a year. And if I don't like it, I'm going to leave and go to law school. And uh, my, my dad, yeah, it was my dad was really happy that I went to the seminary first year. I enjoyed it, but I was still thinking, you know, I don't know if this is for me. And then uh, my dad said, just stay the second year, stay a second year. And so second year, I was still thinking, I don't know if this is for me. And then my dad said, go on Vicarage. And then when I was on Vicarage, that's when I sort of realized, okay, this is what I ought to be doing. And my Vicarage congregation asked me to stay a second year with them, which really in a lot of ways was kind of a confirmation, like, okay, I'm in the right, I'm in the place, I think, where God wants me to be. And, uh, you know, so I finished my program and I, I served as a pastor for six years in Northern California. And I still think back to those six years as some of the probably hardest years of my life and yet the best years of my life. And I still have a good relationship with a number of people from that congregation. When I got my doctorate recently, I, I was, a lot of people were sending me notes and calling me up and it uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of moving, you know, being thanked by the people I'm with now, but to have my former parishioners writing me letters of encouragement and calling me up to talk about it. Uh, uh, yeah, it, sorry if I get a little emotional thinking about it, but uh, I, I would have to say that serving as a pastor was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And part of it, knowing that that's where God wanted me to be. And now I'm called here to, to teach. And 
you guys probably could identify with this. There's still that part of my heart that thinks, man, it would be great to go back out and serve, live with and serve God's people again. Yeah, there's nothing like being, uh, you know, on the front lines of ministry. Yeah. I feel like we're we're a little bit removed, though our, our ministry in some ways is, well, in a lot of ways is to our students. And that that is sometimes front lines ministry. Yeah, it is. But, but uh, but but it's it's definitely was a, a true joy uh, when I left the parish. I I I wept. Yeah. Um, it was it was a hard hard move away. Um, yeah, there's something great about just being with the people of God and sharing the Word of God on a regular basis. And and I'm 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 happy to be here too, um, working with our students. Um, I still teach Bible study at local churches, and that's it's always good to get that parish connection once again. Uh, but uh, but I love working with our students here as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's great. So um, one thing that I know about you, Dr. Lewis, is uh, that's interesting and that I think our student, our, our, our listeners, our prospective students uh, would maybe be interested to know is that you're a you're a big film buff uh you you um you love movies and um and it's not just kind of a a hobby it's it's actually connected to your teaching and to your work here as a a theology professor uh so how how do films and uh teaching the gospel of mark uh and and uh, the gospels in general how do how does that all go together okay uh I've always been a. I've always loved movies my whole life. Um, growing up, I remember going to the drive-ins as a family, and and uh, and I always had a particular interest in any film that was based on the Bible. And I can remember when the Ten Commandments aired for the first time back in the 1970s. I had my Bible out to read Exodus while watching the Ten Commandments, and I was sorely disappointed in that most of if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, most of it isn't found in the Book of Exodus. Um, but I've I've had a particular interest in how our Lord Jesus Christ has been portrayed in film, and um, and I I think that a a a film about Jesus can be a very powerful way of witnessing the gospel. And I've known many people who have been moved by films about Jesus, um, even uh, a film like Jesus Christ Superstar. I've known people who even if if you think that film has a low Christology, I know people who have. They say they came to faith through watching that either the play or the film. You know, the portrayal of Jesus moved them, and then they wanted to find out more. Uh, and and so that's this has been a particular hobby of mine is how is Jesus portrayed in film? And then something that I find even more interesting is how do how how do Hollywood films take a character who's not Jesus and yet portray him as a Christ figure? And I'd say this has become, you might say, one of my greatest loves when it comes to film analysis is looking at a film and is there a character here who does things Jesus does? Uh, in other words, he might like appear in the form of a cross or he might do some miracles. Uh, they might be naturalistic. Uh, does he undergo sort of a death and resurrection? And what intrigues me about about that is is first, if Hollywood is borrowing elements of our story, that means we've got a really good story to tell, right? And, right. and sometimes maybe we uh, sort of treat the gospel story as sort of ordinary and normal. But I mean, this is—I mean, this is God's Son has come to 
bring about God's will of redeeming creation. And he's at war with, you know, the Satan and the demonic realm. He's at war with death and disease. And he 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 dies a dramatic death and then rises again. Uh, this is a great story. And Hollywood uses elements of our story to tell the, theirs. And then I'm sort of interested, too, that how does this reflect sort of our culture? What do people think about Jesus? You know, who is he? What does he do? And then I, I found as a pastor one way to have a conversation uh, with our neighbors, uh, even those who may, who may not be Christian, is to use the medium of film. And uh, and so, for instance, uh, you know, I'm talking to somebody, I find out they like a movie called The Big Lebowski, you know, made by the Coen brothers. And then I say, oh, do you know that the the dude, uh, the you know, Lebowski, that he's a Christ figure? And then often they'll say, no, he isn't. And then I start arguing with them, showing, you know, giving my proofs. And then what I find is I have a conversation with somebody about Jesus where I wouldn't have had the conversation if I just came up to them and said, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? You know, instead right. we're talking about the film and this is sort of a way to get under their radar. And then then I find myself talking, telling the story of the Gospels and talking Christology with somebody who, you know, probably didn't think they were going to have this conversation and or, you know, it could be Guardians of the Galaxy. And and I say, hey, uh, you know, that Groot is a Christ figure. He actually dies and rises again. And he yeah. he's a tree who reaches out like a cross and incorporates everybody into himself. And they're all, what? And then suddenly we're having that conversation. And nobody ever shuts me down. If I were to come and say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? I've had people shut me down. But if, I, if we're talking about a movie and I say, uh, you know, Iron Man is now a Christ figure, suddenly the conversation's going. Uh, and it's, it's just an interesting way to engage uh, the world around us, to engage our neighbors uh with uh, ultimately with the gospel to tell the story of Jesus. And, uh, and so we, we do have a faith and film festival here at the seminary, which was inaugurated two years ago, um, where uh, pe people come to gather to, to watch films and then to analyze the theology and to talk about how these films might be useful in evangelism and teaching. And, uh, and then if you're with me to see, is there a Christ figure? You know, is there a Christ figure in this film? I, I especially like the idea of Groot being a Christ figure, right? In Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm, okay. Iron Man being a Christ figure, or the or uh, the dude, maybe, maybe there's some <laughs> some debate there. But Groot is such a, I mean, for the most part, a wholesome character until he kind of goes crazy and yeah. <laughs> kills all those people. But uh, yeah, but but the great thing about Groot is that he. Um, he sacrifices himself, right? He creates yes. that big ball, and as they're going down, he he yep. gives his life uh, for his friends. And yes. um, yeah, we just we just watched Guardians of the Galaxy again the other night. We've gotten my wife into the Marvel movies, so okay. Uh, yeah, and, that's and he, and he's famous for his I am statements. You know, the John statements: oh, yeah. I am the bread of life, I am the <laughs> resurrection of the life, and I am Groot. Groot. And I we we watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy with some high school boys who came to visit the campus and a number of them pointed out oh like jesus groot says i am nice. until the final scene where he says we are groot and oh yeah exactly that's when he incorporates everybody into himself well we could debate uh, the other movies you know iron man and uh and the dude but um <laughs> well the, yeah that's the, great the strongest part about using film to relate our faith to what's going on in the world is, is again that relatability it brings other people into the story in an engaging way and gets them get it gives you the opportunity to be a witness 
because we, we say this phrase so often that we're in the world, not of the world. And the purpose of us being in the world today is first and foremost to receive God's grace, love, mercy, salvation, but also to share that with the rest of the world for the sake of the gospel, to continue to spread the gospel so that more and more might come to know Jesus and be brought into the body of Christ, uh, which is a, a quick segue into Titus chapter three. If every all of you listeners, if, if this is your first episode, welcome. Uh, I would I would like to encourage you to go back at least a few episodes to where we first began this uh uh, this series on the book of Titus, one of the pastoral epistles written by Paul, specifically to a pastor named Titus, but also to the church in Crete uh, to help them establish themselves a relatively new church uh, in a pagan island in the Greco-Roman world. And what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, and chapter three, uh, we, we've already kind of gone through chapters one and two, but but chapter three continues this theme of of what does it mean to be a Christian in the world, and and what does it mean to teach the body of Christ uh, how to be Christian in the world? Um, and so that's where we're going to pick up today, Titus chapter three. Uh, and Ben, uh, would you mind reading this chapter for us? Let's do it, Titus chapter three. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the kindness and Sorry, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So that's Titus chapter three. So, Dr. Lewis, um, tell us a little bit. Uh, you were you were telling us before uh, the the episode before we started uh, that you spent a little time in the Greek. So. Um, just, uh, we're not going to have you read it in Greek, but, um, tell us a little bit about your, your reading of this, uh, this chapter and what you see going on here. Well, uh, and also before we begin, you, um, 
you told me that in previous conversations on chapters one and two, uh, you've seen this theme emerge of the relationship of doctrine and life, and uh, that uh, Paul is, you know, encouraging Titus to teach these new believers in Crete uh, about the Christian life and how it's always in the end going to be based in the Christian teachings uh, and very clearly in the gospel. And I think we see that clearly in in Titus chapter three, especially when you when you look uh, at verses uh, four through seven, where uh, Paul sort of you might say delivers the gospel pretty clearly you know, about what God has done for us. This is this is the basis for the life that Paul is encouraging Titus to encourage to these new believers. Uh, and so this this chapter, I think it continues this kind of general admonition of the Christian life in verse one. And uh, and Paul does some, something sort of interesting uh, when you go when you switch from verse one to uh, verses one and two to verse three. Um, Paul makes this move uh, about what you might say our past life was, the life that we've been saved from. So he's urging, you know, the Christian life, and then he, you know, sort of says, but this is how things used to be. And he does something similar in in Ephesians chapter 2, when he tells the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But a few verses later, he says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So it's kind of you Gentiles, we Jews, uh, both of us alike were, you know, we were plagued by, I guess we could say, this problem of original sin that then led to the sort of lives of actual sin that from which God delivered us. And I, I don't know if, uh, one, when I looked in the Greek, one thing I noticed was in verse 1, there's actually seven, verses 1 and 2, there's seven things Paul tells Titus to encourage the the, uh, cr- the these uh, Christians to do. And then in verse three, there's seven things, seven evil things that used to uh, exemplify our life. It's sort of like seven positive things that, you know, Christians ought to do. And then there's seven things that we used to do that uh, God saved us from. And uh, kind of just an interesting uh sort of interesting symmetry there. You know, here are seven things you ought to be doing in verses one and two. Here are seven things we used to do. And then then he launches into, you know, God's mercy, just like he does in Ephesians 2. He, this was our former life, and God saved us from that former life. Is is the the move here between uh, verses one and two to, to verse three and, and four and following, is it kind of the the idea that, look, um, don't don't be don't be complete jerks and hating on people that are outside of Christianity because without Christ that's exactly who we used to be and so uh, there's this sense that um, you shouldn't I mean obviously don't be like them but but also um, treat them treat people that are outsiders in a certain way because without Christ that's exactly who we who we used to be is that is that a I, fair? I, move? I think you're. I think you. I think you've nailed it. That's exactly what Paul's doing, because uh, verses one and two really are about our relationship to the world around us. I mean, definitely to our two fellow believers, but even more. He's he's speaking about the government authorities first, um, where he says, you know, submit yourselves to the rulers and authorities, 
uh, be obedient. You know, in other words, your relationship to the government outside is is one of uh, you might say being almost a model citizen. And, and then you know, be when it when he says you be being prepared to for every good work. This is for our non-believing neighbors out there to show you know all gentleness and humility to those outside. This is this is our relation. This is how our relationship with the world around us, with our neighbors, is to be. So not just in church when we're hanging out with our brothers and sisters, but this is in our relationship to everybody. And uh, and then uh, the move, you know, because there's a, a four in verse three. Four, we ourselves. Uh, used you might, yeah. So I, I think Ben, you could actually say it that way. We used to be like them, and God delivered us from that. So you might, so you might notice this kind of defeats any sort of self-righteous approach to the Christian life where, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm better than y'all. I'm more righteous than you. No, it's like I used to be you, right? And this is Paul. You you could say, when in Paul's life was he ever, for instance, a slave to every pleasure and, you know, desire? Um, you know, but, but, you know, but Paul would say, no, he was a sinner. Therefore, he, he's no different than any other sinners out there. And, um, and I think that's a, a, a pretty good insight uh, that you offer there, Ben, is that uh, that you know we used to be this way. Jesus saved us from that life, and so now our relationship to people, even if they're living, even if they're you know, despicable and haters of one another, is we're to show we're to be prepared to do every good work for them, to demonstrate every humility, every gentleness to them. Those uh that those those verses and those themes hit hard because one of the the clear themes in Titus is is false teaching versus pure and right teaching, and he he hits this in, in almost every chapter uh, of warning them. And we with Doctor Seifert we we talked about well is this uh, false teaching coming from outside or is it false teaching within the church? And if you read throughout Paul, almost always it's it's in the church. It's, yes. it's not talking yeah. about outsiders, and so it, it kind of for us is this reminder that as we're struggling. Uh, as a church and in all these different ways as we're we're looking around and trying to figure out our place, our context, and how uh God's word, the gospel, and law, both all the right teaching apply to us today. A little too often we're a little too quick to look outside and say the, the problem with with what we're trying to accomplish here inside the church is out there. But Paul again calls us back and says, Well, no, the problems that we're having are together. We're the body of Christ. And if we get our things together, if we act uh, according to the way that, according to the life that we've been given in Jesus, then the outside problems will still be there, but our attitude towards them will be orientated properly. And then because our attitude towards the outside is orientated properly, we'll be demonstrating the Christian life given to us, and it'll be a little more appealing to the outside. And then again, hopefully, hopefully uh, be attractive. The church should be be attractive to outsiders. <laughs> yeah, and and in, in part because we're loving the outsiders, which is what Paul is demonst- what, what he's arguing in verses one and two. This was this is a this is a life that would uh, be extending mercy, good works to those outside of the church. Right. Um, and then it's later in the chapter when he talks about you know you know sort of dismissing someone after two or three one or two warnings. That's an insider, right? That's right. someone inside the church, not an outsider, right? Yep. In other words, in these admonitions, we're not really we're we're unable to dismiss the rest of the world. They're there, you know. Uh, the the problem in this when there is a problem later in this chapter, it's with those inside, you know. And, and, and false teaching, misunderstanding of the gospel. 
think. Yes. I don't, and I don't want to hit this too hard, uh, just because of you know, again, the law is always heavy and, and rightly so. But in my last year of seminary, uh, one of our symposias, the the theme was like when God remembers, and we were we we're looking at memory and things like that. And we had some specialists come in from the outside to teach us about how human memory works. And uh, one professor was taking one of the presenters back to the airport, and I'm being vague intentionally, uh, but but the professor asked the presenter, what do you think? And being a complete outsider, not really knowing much about the LCMS other than the fact that we invited the, the person to come and speak about memory, they said, uh, you are an embattled people. What an impression after two days. And, and, and again, it's one of those things where, again, Lutherans, we, we love a good argument, and, and sometimes the argument is just, but it's not the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we, should, we should remember to be more gracious with each other on a more regular basis. Well, it, it's interesting. The, the, the first uh, words in verse two are blast. It's really the Greek is blaspheme nobody. Right. And I think, how does the English read? Uh, ESV says to speak evil of. Of no one. Yeah, and yeah. it's really, the word there is blaspheme, which we usually mm. assume is a sin committed against God. But Paul uses these words here about, and it really, it's, it, it's you know, this is speaking evil. I mean, I would say both inside, but I think, again, verses one and two, I think, are directed to the world. Um, and so we... You know, in a sense, it is God's judge to ju judge the sinner. And so Paul here wants us to take the track of we're not going to speak evil of anyone. You know, speak evil of no one, you know. Uh, and that would that would include those on the outside, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, there's, words, yeah. There, there's something great about our, our uh, Lutheran uh, liturgy every Sunday that we come back to this idea that uh, who who we once were and who we who we are maybe still uh, as what what uh, we sometimes call the old Adam right yeah. um, and we we are continually uh, returned to I a poor miserable sinner and sometimes people say oh come on you know is it is it really that bad but the more I live the Christian life the more I realize like oh. Yeah, I mean, I know myself, <laughs> and I know my thoughts, and I know um, the the way that, uh, you know, um, I, I try not to be that kind of person, but I know myself pretty well, and, um, you know, the longer I get to know me, the, the worse the worse it gets, um, and, and the, the, the better and the, the sweeter the, the mercy and forgiveness of, of Jesus is, so it's um it's it's important i think for us to and paul's doing that right reminding yeah. christians that without christ um we're a pitiful people and um and and so we're we're desperate for uh what what verse four is going to bring to us so yeah. so turn us to the gospel dr lewis okay languish in the law well this is we see here paul is clearly distinguishing law and gospel uh, verse 3 is clear law. Uh, this is a description of what we were. And then I would say, I sometimes I agree with you, not only what we were, but sometimes what I still am, you know. In other words, I, you know, foolish, disobedient, deceived, uh, serving various kinds of desires and pleasures, spending life in wickedness and jealousy, malice and jealousy, loathsome, which is a, 
pretty loaded word, just hate, you know, hated by others, I think is what the ESV says, but it's really loathsome, despicable, and uh, then hating one another, and uh, and uh, then you get, the, you get, you get the but, but, you know, however, you know, the, this is, this isn't where we are now, because when God, uh, God our Savior is how Paul identifies God the Father here, and uh, the, the two words of, of God's, the two things that belong to him are his, his loving kindness, and I got to mention the Greek here, it's the word philanthropia, you know, philanthropy. In other words, it's a word man-loving, right? Uh, God is a lover uh, of men. He created us in his image, even the people of Crete, right? And this is something Paul had to learn. You know, it's you know, he not he's not just for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. Uh, God is a man-lover. He loves humanity. And this became clear uh, in time uh, through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is in Christ. God demonstrates his his uh, his uh, his his kindness and his love of humanity uh, in in Jesus and uh, and then and then uh, in the main sentence really in verses four through five is you know God our Savior uh, saved us you know so when when his uh, kindness and love of humanity were evident he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the main, this is the main thing he did. And then, then Paul, I think he's kind of speaking against his opponents inside the church when he says earlier in verse five, not by works uh, that which we did, works done in righteousness, which we did, but uh, on account of his own mercy. And uh, this is, uh, this is gospel. In other words, this here it's not based on the fact that we were lovable and we did a bunch of good things. In fact, I don't think anybody in that description of verse three could ever be described as lovable. Uh, but on the basis of His mercy, His kindness, His you know, and philanthropia. You know, God is the ultimate philanthropist. He loves people. On on the basis of that, uh, God saved us. And then uh, we Lutherans tend to see verse five as speaking about baptism. You know, in other words, this is what, what is the washing of regeneration, renewal uh, of the Holy Spirit. This would be uh, this would be baptism. You know, this is uh, you know Paul himself, a man who hated Christians and tried to destroy the church, uh, was then you know confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road. But the real turning point for him was when a Christian believer, Ananias, came to him gave him absolution and baptized him. And that's the moment when Paul sort of enters into the ecclesia, into the church. And uh, and so this is the the main act, you might say, that Paul's emphasizing is that washing. And, and it's a washing of regeneration and renewal. And so go back and look at verse 3. All that stuff has been washed away in baptism. And so you, know, you go back and look at all that stuff we used to be, you know, foolish, disobedient, deceived, uh, serving various kinds of desires and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, loathsome, despicable people hating one another. Uh, the waters of baptism have washed that away. And uh, regeneration and renewal. Uh, so, yeah, that old man, Ben, that you mentioned is drowned, and the new man has been raised up by God, our Savior, not based on works that we've done, but because he was merciful 
and loved humanity. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of um, John 3, verse 5, where Jesus says, uh, you must you must be born again of yeah. water and the spirit that um, that birth that that comes through water um, is is uh, pretty similar to what Paul is talking about, this washing of um, re rebirth or poly uh, uh, polygenetos. Yeah, polygenetos. Um, birthing again is what birthing it says. again. It's, yeah, yeah. Regeneration, and birthing again. I remember yeah. actually being in your Gospel of John class and uh, coming to the realization that you know a lot of evangelicals take that that uh, you must be born again as you must say the Jesus prayer and or yes. the 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 sinner's prayer and such, but all the early uh, Christians, uh, right after the apostles, they all read John three verse five and probably Titus three too, as um, as being about baptism. Um, that this is this is a, a not just any washing or some kind of symbolic washing, and it's not just saying some prayer or being converted. It it really is about the sacrament of baptism as as uh, Lutherans uh, typically see it. So I think Lutherans are in pretty pretty good company in our, our reading of this uh, passage as a baptismal passage. And it is the Holy Spirit who's at work. And yeah, that's, you know, those, the words in the Greek, it's sort of becoming again, that's, you know, that regeneration. And then, you know, newing again, it's almost like renewal, you know, ana, you know, kinesios is, you know, sort of, Becoming new again, you know. Uh, yep. Yeah, it makes me think of John three sixteen, and you know, verse six is great because you know the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, in other words, the idea that uh, there, I, I'm thinking of you know Jesus came to give us life and give it in abundance. You know, God, God generously, not a, you know, not just a, a light washing, but a flood. You know, a flood of God's grace. Yeah, you know, washing verse three away. You know all those nasty things that we used to be. Uh, you know, just gone away. It's a. Uh, it, this is, I think, pretty wonderful gospel here in Titus. And uh, well, it, it, and the message, like you said, is so rich and abundant and strong, is powerful. And I love the consistency uh, in Paul's preaching of the gospel. We kind of talked about what well, we mentioned Ephesians two earlier. But in verse five, it says, by grace, you have been saved. And then if we go to verse eight, the famous one for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And, yep. and Dr. Lewis, I think when I was a student here in conversation, maybe it was at lunch, maybe it was in passing, maybe it was in Greek, because uh, uh, Dr. Lewis was my my Greek professor when I was a student here. Uh, the this in Ephesians 2, 8 is it. it when you become a student of Greek, it, it's a little strange because it's neuter in a singular. Greek is an inflected language. So when you see this neuter pronoun, this is this isn't a pronoun. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it, oh, well, yeah. okay. There we go. Uh, you, You're you, right. You're right. You start to look around in the Greek for well, what's also neuter and singular, and there's nothing close to the this. And so, and and I think that you were saying in this conversation and and this can probably be translated a million different ways that the, this is this kind of encompassing idea of salvation that's being talked about in these verses. And yeah. so 
we have salvation through Jesus Christ, and this is what it means, grace, mercy, love, and this is how yeah. it's applied to you, and this is how it impacts you. And in all of these things, the grace, the mercy, the faith, not only is it a gift, it's given to us by God. Bang, powerful, you're saved. Baptism, wow, right in your face. And it's just so incredible. And then when it's preached to you like that, like what else is there to say? Yeah. And and for at least, you know, 30 minutes after church on Sunday, you're impacted and you're ready to live this Christian life. And then somebody cuts you off in traffic and yep. <laughs> terrible seminar am I. <laughs> I love yeah. the I love the well, part. By the about way, Pastor uh, Glenn uh, scored a 98 on the Greek qualifier way well, back when. So you know, one of the top scores in the class. Just you know, had to throw that out there too. So uh, the, you guys can't see, but like when Ben talks about my barbecue <laughs> and Doctor Lewis talking about my my Greek score live, you know, the ego is is strong yeah. over here. <laughs> but, uh, that was uh, yeah yeah and. And, and I would say, you know, in Ephesians 2, when he says, you know, you've been made alive with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, uh, you've been seated with him. I think these are all, again, baptism, references to baptism, you know, yep. and God's done it and we receive it. I, I want to go back to the, that uh, philanthropia uh, that you were talking about earlier before we started talking about baptism, because um a film image came to my mind, oh, and cool. I, I wanted to throw this out. So, uh, The Matrix is kind of a dangerous film to uh, to liken to uh, to Christianity, but but in this case, it's kind of a a, a foil. It's it's actually The Matrix when the uh, Agent Smith, I think it is, that yeah. uh, he actually says, speaking as kind of all of the the Matrix, how much they hate humanity. That yeah. he talks about the stench it gets in my nostrils and i i i don't remember exactly all of what he says but he kind of says basically like i want to you know exterminate all of humanity it's this intense hatred of human beings and people and this this whole passage just kind of strikes me as the exact opposite of that god is not a hater of humanity he is a lover of humanity, he the 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 smell, the uh, being with us, walking among us. Um, philanthropia is such a strong and powerful image of who who our God is and who He wants His people to be. To the yep. to the point of putting it on in Jesus. Yep. Yeah, Amen. Right, exactly. exactly. That's that's why Revelation twenty two, uh, we don't die and go to heaven. Heaven comes down to the, the new heavens come down to the new earth. And then it said, God has made his dwelling with man. You know, mm, that the yeah. whole goal is that God himself would live with us. And uh, yeah, the Matrix is a Christ figure film. You know, Neo, uh, to be a Christ figure film, it doesn't have to be Orthodox Christianity. They just have to <laughs> make, they just, the figure has to represent Jesus. And Neo is actually called Jesus in the opening scene when he's first introduced. The guy right. says, hey man, you're my, you're my you're my savior, man. You're my personal Jesus Christ. That clues the audience in that Neo is the guy, and and yeah, Agent Smith. He calls humanity a cancer. He oh yeah yeah. And that's that. Made, I would say that Doctor Hop. That's probably one of the most powerful depictions of the opposite of philanthropia. You know, his just utter hatred, not just for humanity, but for creation itself. Just yeah. the whole you know humans and everything that goes with it. He wants to go back to that spiritual world. You know pure spirit you know he's he's a true satan figure you know right uh, seek and kill and destroy yeah. seek kill and destroy yeah uh, good but word. so the 
Or go ahead, Micah. Well, I was just saying, uh, you know, time-wise and and also series-wise, we're we're approaching the end of this incredible book. Uh, again, a letter written to Titus, and for us, uh, God breathes scripture, perfect for informing and teaching us what it means to be ecclesia of the church, God's gathering in the world. Uh, Paul uh, he, he goes from gospel. You you can, I'll let you categorize the next part. It's it's law, but yeah, but but a, but a part of the sanctified life, right? Yeah. To avoid yes. certain things that okay, like you you've been blessed by the gospel, you've been brought into God's story, and and here are some further things to avoid, uh, because we can trip on these things all the time. In fact, I think we often do. Uh, before you know, final instructions and uh, you know, a, a final greeting and, and the the closing, grace be with you all. Uh, so. Dr. Lewis, if you'd be so kind, bring us in to this conclusion of the the letter to Titus. Okay, I, I still have, I have to talk about verse seven too, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. They had a purpose. The purpose of God, you know, baptizing us is uh, that you know afterwards, you know, because we've been justified by His grace, by this guy, God's grace, uh, we would become uh, heirs uh, according to the hope of eternal life and. This is where this is where God has brought us into, and and so when He says, you know, and then He says, you know, the, the word is faithful. I, you know, it's just there. I got. I think He's referring to this gospel word He just shared, and so then when He says, you know, He tells Titus, you know, that you know, and I desire for you to insist, you know, I, I desire you to insist the concerning these things, and, and again, it's one of those things, you know, what is the reference to these things, and. Uh, I looked at a commentary. Some people say it goes back to verse one and two that you tell them to live this way. And I, I don't think, I think it's like embracing everything. It's like, you've got sanctified life in verses one and two, and then you got just hard law, second use in verse three, and then this rich gospel. And then it's almost like Paul is, you know, I, what I want you Titus to is to insist on this sort of, you know, this life because of the, what God has done for us. You know, it's not just this life, but this life based on what, you know, on the wonderful grace and the new life that God has given us in Jesus. And, uh, and, and so he does get, but then he, he does get back into the sanctification. And I think we get a shift here, uh, especially in verse nine on inside matters. I, I'm thankful, Dr. Hop, that you sort of divided it up that way. You've got, uh, you know, it's verse verses one and two really is sort of everybody, especially outsiders. And, the problem is on the inside. And so I don't think when he says avoid foolish foolish controversies and genealogies and, you know, quarrelsomeness, you know, and uh, and then and arguments about likely about the law. I don't think he's talking about arguing with the, the pagan Gentiles outside. It's about these are arguments within the church. And this has probably been hit on by uh you know, Doctors Nasker and Seleska and Dr. Zyfred, uh, the big controversy of the first century in the in the days of Paul was do Gentile Christians need to become Jews to be Christian? And uh, do, you know, especially the part of, party of the circumcision that he mentions back in chapter one, they're insisting that Gentiles need to get circumcised and start keeping the Torah. And Paul is sort of telling Titus here, avoid this nonsense, right? Don't even get in other words after we've seen the gospel so richly demonstrated you know in a sense you know as you pointed out pastor glenn 
what can we add? You know, what can we add? We can't add anything. Uh, and so just dismiss these guys. And and then the contentious person that he's speaking about in verse 10 is an insider. This is, uh, unfortunately, one of our fellow Christians who just insists on fighting, you know, just, you know, he insists on fighting. And, and Paul says, you know, after you've warned him two times, you know, you know, just have nothing to do with this guy anymore, uh, knowing, and then it's pretty harsh words in verse 11, knowing that he's, uh, he's perverted, he's twisted, and he's sinning, you know. And uh, this reflects what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where he says, when I told you not to have nothing to do with sinners, I'm not talking about outsiders, I'm talking about people within the, in the gathering, in the church. And, uh, and the problem here that Paul's focusing upon would be, it would be these Judaizers who are insisting you know, they probably came to Crete, or they're going to come to Crete, and they're going to insist you guys need to get circumcised. That's the guarantee that you're in, and you know, just avoid this stuff. And uh, and then how that's manifested in the church today, unfortunately, there seem to be those within the church who just love to fight. And uh, you know, I I wonder if we always have, you know, in other words. Paul's Paul's approach is pretty simple. Okay, I warned you twice, buddy. I'm just not gonna. I'm not reading your blogs anymore. You know, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, but uh, especially these arguments that distract from the mission of the church and the gospel. You know, um, you know, they're 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 what does Paul say? They're useless and empty. So these these other things. You know, they're useless and empty. So. Just don't have anything to do with them, and uh, and uh, and so you know this you know his exhortation in this section before he gets to the final greeting, he it really you know back in verse eight, what does he want Christians to do? He wants us to engage in good works, you know. He wants people who love who believe in God to engage in good works, um, and I think you could probably see that demonstrated back in verses one and two. You know, because of what God has done, we ought to be engaging in good works, not having stupid theological debates. You know especially those that uh, would obscure the gospel of Jesus. Well, and the, the great thing about all this is that Paul keeps say, saying, I insist on these things. I yeah. want you to yeah. focus on the majors. And there, there's such joy. And I'm thinking about our listeners here who are maybe thinking about, uh, you know, becoming a pastor, studying to be a pastor or a deaconess. Um, there is such great joy in reminding people of the philanthropia, the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, who came in Jesus. That is such joy-filled um, uh, news and and such a joy to share. Um, yeah, just beautiful stuff. Dr. Lewis, before we sign out, uh, as Ben mentioned, uh, you know, we're hoping that there are some people listening in uh, that, that might be interested or or might have that little whatever in the back of their mind thinking that uh maybe pastoral ministry is for them maybe it's their parents or their pastor saying hey you should go to seminary hey you should go to seminary for a decade or two uh, i think some people can relate to that in light of titus and, and what we've been talking about today what, what's one major piece of advice you would uh give to anybody who has the little little tiniest speck of an inkling that this might be for them I would I would uh I would encourage you to to visit Concordia Seminary, um, and uh, you could probably talk to these two men here, especially Pastor Glenn. Uh, I would say come here uh, if you have the time. Uh, 
uh, visit a class. Uh, most of the professors here, I think all of us love it when visitors come. Um, and I would say if your mom, your dad, your pastors, or other, your friends have been telling you, you, you ought, you'd be a great pastor, uh, listen to them. Um, God will often use uh, those in our lives, um, you know, especially those who have that vocation, pastor, parent, uh, friend, to, to, to speak, to speak to us. And, um, uh, and, you know, this is, it's a, you know, Paul says in first Timothy, this is a noble, it's a noble call. It's a noble thing to want to be a pastor. It's not for every Christian. It's not for every, every Christian, but, um, and in a sense, if Paul in verse four is admitting, you know, we were once these despicable, loathsome sinners, um, it's because we've received the grace of God that uh, we're able to do this, the, to do this ministry. And uh, it's a high calling and it's not for everybody. But if you think that it might be yours, if people have been telling you that, um, you know, check out, come come to the seminary and check us out. And, uh, and then we'll be praying for you. And uh, I'd say you pray also. And as you look ahead, you know, you could be like me and wait the last minute to, you know, major in pre-law, then last minute go to the seminary instead. I mean, if, if you're sure it's something you, you might do, you know, check out our Concordia universities, um, check out the pre pre-sem programs and, um, uh, you know, start preparing uh, for this place if that's if this is where you think you ought to be. And even if you have an inkling, um, I think being a pastor is the best job you can have. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's second so best much. is being a sem prof, but being a pastor is the best job you can have. Uh, just to be with God's people, uh, to love them, to teach them, uh, to do ministry with them. Uh, it's one of the greatest blessings of my life. So. Well, and that really comes through in in your classroom, in your teaching. Uh, Mike and I have both been your students and uh, sat at your feet, and uh, it's been a true joy to be with you uh, for another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Listeners, we have a couple more episodes left in season one, some exciting conversations coming up, so hang with us for another episode. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows his followers how to care for his people. Oftentimes, this includes sharing the word in intimate moments of personal conversation like the Samaritan woman at the well. At other times, it's sharing the word with crowds like the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes, it's just being there for people when they are experiencing the worst moments of life, like when Jesus was there for Jairus when his daughter died. It's gathering his disciples around a table of bread and wine to hear this is my body, this is my blood. Whether it's as a deaconess sharing the word with the sick, or as a pastor preaching the word and administering the sacraments, being there for people at these intimate moments in life is something that Jesus is calling many more people to do. In Under the Fig Tree, we want to bring you into these moments with us, and maybe you begin to see yourself in one of these roles or feel yourself being called into service of the church. If you want to find out more about what it means to be a pastor or deaconess, visit us at csl.edu. And of course, keep listening to Under the Fig Tree.